I know what's been going on in this series is that there's been many of us have been um, uh, listening, hearing, reading, and understanding that there is this prophet named Hosea who is called to go marry a woman who is going to be unfaithful. And so many of us have had some of our own personal issues that have been rising to the top. Some of us have felt overwhelmed at times with guilt over our past decisions. Others of us have had to deal with the anger that has stirred up inside of us because of our ex-spouse's decisions. Some of us have had to deal with the pain and the trauma that has resulted as our childhood memories when we watched our folks that broke up over this very issue. What I want to tell you is this. All sin has its consequences. We're going to see that here in just a moment. But I'm so glad that Brooke chose to read what she chose on the front end right there. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, there is always consequences in there's, to decisions that we make in life. But today, um, you do not have to wear the scarlet A. If you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. In other words, God says, hey, I'm going to help you. I'm going to draw alongside of you. I'm going to help you deal with the consequences that occur in life. But there's no condemnation from me. So I don't know what has been stirring in your mind and heart, whether it's that anger that you've needed to, to, to finally release over to the Lord. And by the way, it won't be the last time that you have to release it to him. You'll just keep coming back to him. I hope you find that he's a, an excellent source for you to hurl your anger upon God. He's a pretty big boy. He can handle it. Hurling your anxiety upon it, your worry on him. I, I don't know what you do with your shame. But I will tell you, there is nothing that you can do with your shame other than take it to the person of God and have him actually deal with it. So again, I, I am not excusing sin. You'll see that here in just a second. I, what I am telling you is this. God's grace is better than you could possibly fathom it. And the only source I think that you're going to find everlasting satisfaction now, this series is on the series of Hosea, and we've said a couple things along the way. The main question that we've been asking throughout this series, it sets up every week is, or the main statement we make is this, we all question God's love. At some level, we all question it. Whether it's for a moment, whether it's for months, whether it's for years, whether right here, right now, sitting or watching online, right, you may be questioning God's love. We all do it at some point and in some fashion. The first week we said this, that Hosea itself is just a book about God's love. It's not primarily a story about a prophet and his wife. It's primarily a story about God and his bride. In week number two, we said love is experienced through word and deed. It's not just one or the other. It's not just the expression of it, and it's not just the actions. It's the both and, and, and that's how we experience love, when we can see it and when we can feel it. Last week, we said that love keeps coming back. That over and over and over again, love just keeps coming back. And so it is with God's love towards us. No matter how many times that you choose to run away from him, ignore him, go the opposite direction, no matter how many times he's coming back to you. <clears throat> now, hear me. He is going to come back to you, and if you will stop running 
then the pain will lessen. Because God is coming after his children. He will not let them run down a course in which they are going to destroy themselves. He will step in. And the sooner you stop and then run towards him in the process, the better you're going to feel the embrace. God is going to do whatever he needs to do, though, in order to get your attention. And so if that means involving pain in the process, you'll experience pain. Now, we have a dog. And recently, we had thought about um, placing that dog into uh, another location, another home, et cetera. Maybe they could care for this dog better than we could, et cetera. But the main reason was just because I don't like how much the dog sheds. Like, it is fur constantly everywhere. So outside on our porch, um, uh, I, I don't even want to describe it. It's disgusting, right? So inside, though, is where this dog has moved into. And we've brought this dog in, and guess what is happening to this dog? This dog is now doing much better as a result of being around us more often. Now, when that dog was very little, Judith and I would take a walk. The boys would be playing. We had, we had an elementary school that was down by our house, and so the boys would go, and they would play football there. Judith and I would walk our laps, and then when we were done walking our laps, I would then play all-time quarterback for the boys. So this dog would walk with us when this dog was just a little puppy and could not even walk the entirety of the time, got so tired. So sometimes we have to carry it. Well, on one particular night, we're walking. This dog, uh, uh, the, the boys are playing, and the boys decided they were going to go back to the house. Now, in order to get back to the house, you had to cross a street. Now, that street is probably, think, um, think um, North Meridian here. It's about as busy as North Meridian. And so this dog decides to follow our boys instead of staying with us. And by the time we realize that the dog is gone, I'm looking, and there she is, just doing everything she can to get up this giant hill. And I know there's no way this dog is going to stop by coming to the street. So I take off and sprint. And I sprint after this dog, and sure enough, exactly what you would think would happen happens. There is a car coming down with lights on. No way to see this dog that is making its way out into the road. I go superhuman, bionic speed, and literally dive onto this dog in the lane in which cars should be coming this way, but a car was coming this. I dive in the lane, capture the dog, and save the dog's life. And do you know what that dog did? Dog bit the snot out of me. There was no thank you so much for your overwhelming love and compassion. Thanks for extending my life. That dog was just, ah, ah, Now, it was a puppy. So its bite was not particularly strong. And, and, and as the wise, mature father, this is what God does with us. See, sin is going to be pleasant for a moment. We're going to think this is the greatest thing in the world. We're going to follow some people along the way. We're going to make our journey up there. And we have no idea that there is oncoming traffic that is going to destroy us in the process. And God will call on us. He will call and call and call. And if we don't respond and turn around, God is jumping in. He is going to fall on top of us. And many times what we do is say, God, why'd you make my life look like this? He is tackling you, and it is for your good. Love 
includes consequences. If you take consequences out of the equation, I'm not sure that you're actually going to have love. Now, I'm primarily talking right now about a authority and, and, and someone that's under authority type of relationship. I'm not really talking right now about a husband and wife, um, uh, and that, that looks different, but, uh, but parent and child, when it comes to government and people, etc., love includes consequences. What if the government just determined that there would no longer in any way, shape, or form be any enforcement of the law? Would that be a loving government? What if a parent said, you know what, there's going to be no consequences whatsoever to any decisions that are made in this house. Just do whatever you want, whenever you want. And you know what, I'm just going to love you. Chaos. I don't have to explain this, do I? It's pretty obvious to us all. Love includes consequences. If you are physically able, we'll only read four or five verses here, but we're going to read the first three verses of Hosea chapter 8, and then we'll flip over and read one verse in chapter 10. But if you're able, stand in honor of God's word. Hosea chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel cries out to me, our God, we acknowledge you, but Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy, enemy will pursue him. And then over in chapter 10, verse 12. Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. You may be seated. Now today we're tackling chapters 8 through 10. And just as a reminder, Hosea is the prophet that God has called to minister during the time in which this story is taking place. He's ministering primarily to the northern kingdom. I am convinced that the story is primarily written, however, for the southern kingdom and for all of God's people who will follow after that. It is written for the purpose of us not making the same mistake. Hosea 14.9 gives us really the purpose of the book. Who is wise, let him realize these things. Who is discerning, let him understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Wise people walk in the ways of the Lord. The rebellious stumble along, meaning they stumble over themselves trying to avoid them. In verses 1 through 3 in chapter 8, it tells us that sin is denounced. Now, I like the way that a man named Lawrence Richards, who is a commentator, puts this. He gave us some great language. He says, uh, play now, verses, uh, uh, um, uh, there it is, uh, chapter 8. And then chapters 9 and 10 are going to tell us to pay later. Play now, pay later. If you have a rebellious friend making unwise decisions, foolish decisions in life, you probably have said something along these lines to this friend. If this is the route you want to go, you can go. You can play now. But I'm telling you there is a cost later on. You're going to have to pay at some point. 
It's like debt. You can keep charging. You can keep borrowing. But at some point, you're going to have to pay that bill. And if you don't, there are significant consequences that await. It is true. Whatever it is that we sow, that is what we are going to reap. And so God is telling his people right here, He's telling them, put the trumpet up to your lips. Now, what he's saying is, sound the alarm, talking to the people of Israel. Blow the trumpet. In other words, um, uh, make it painfully obvious that something significant is about to happen. They would blow this horn when there was an impending enemy that was making its way in or when there were other important announcements to make in in, in the culture. So he says, blow the horn, sound the trumpet. It's the second time that he has said this. He said it another time in chapter 5, uh, verse 8. And uh, according to Numbers 10, uh, the, the Jews used these trumpets for all kinds of special occasions. Now notice this. He says that there is an eagle. If you have the ESV, it might be translated as vulture. And you might say, how in the world do you translate eagle and vulture the same in there? I did not know this until I began to research this. Did you know that the two have very similar patterns? Did you know that the two will circle over looking at their victims down below them before it is that they make their way down? Now, vultures are disgusting creatures. Eagles are majestic in nature. But both of them will will circle above. They'll be spying it out, looking down in order to find where it is that they're going to go and and to take advantage of this um, opportunity. He says that there is a vulture, there is an eagle, it's, it's a predator that's circling above. Who is it? It is Assyria. That's who he's referring to right here. They're at a time in their nation's history, the kingdom is divided, the northern kingdom right now is experiencing, has experienced uh, a king out there um, that you'll see in just a minute, did not trust the Lord even though he had God's favor upon him. Instead, what he does is he goes to this other nation. He says, this other nation that you have gone to is now circling above. They are just waiting to come in and to destroy you. Please let this picture sit in your head. There was a movie that came out several years ago called Bedazzled. And it was uh, Elizabeth, whatever her name is, British actress. Beautiful lady. And what's so great about it is she plays the role of the devil. And it's so appropriate. You have this devil that looks so wonderful, but yet what was on the inside? What was there in store for that? It was to be seductive in nature, but then to ultimately destroy the prey. This is what sin does. It looks down upon people. It it is circling around, just waiting for the right opportunity. If you've ever experienced some type of addiction, if you've ever been overwhelmed, be it by drugs or alcohol or whatever it may be, um, and there could be gambling, could be porn, whatever it might be, you know what it's like to be addicted. You know what it's like to have something that is circling around over you, Waiting to provide just the right opportunity when you're at your weakest. And then I promise you, whatever this is, that does not have your best interest in mind. The evil one is ultimately behind this. And he may use all kinds of means by which to do it. In this particular case, he's using another nation. And God's people, God's chosen 
people, the one that he has run after over and over again, has called to over and over again, are not running to him. And because they're not running to him, the evil one knows, this is going to be easy pickings. See, when there's the struggle that's going on inside of us, when there's the battle that's going on inside of us, saying, oh, God, I don't want to do this. Help me to, help me to, to not follow through with this. Help me to run towards you. That battle right there, the devil goes, ah, I don't like this. I don't like this stirring that's going on inside of them. I don't like this fight that they're doing of trying to get over to God. They're just waiting for those who are sitting back, not at all pursuing God. That, that's easy pickings for them. Circling around. It said, notice it says here that they rebelled against his law. My people have broken my covenant, says in verse 1, and they have rebelled against my law. That word rebelled is also translated transgressed. For those of you that use the ESV right now, which is what we most often teach out of, that is an intentional and willful decision to walk away from God. It's knowing what I should be doing and choosing not to do it anyway. It's not being deceived like Eve was in the garden. Eve was deceived in the garden. She did not realize that what she was doing was sinful. Adam, on the other hand, knew exactly what was going on, and he chose not to run to the Lord, not to call out to the Lord, just to step back and go, man, we'll just see what happens. My people have rebelled against me. They know better. Here's the thing. If you have a fight that is going on inside of you, that's good. If you are struggling to want to do what it is that God wants you to do, hallelujah. If you are trying to move forward into the presence of God and you're trying to fight that nature inside of you that says, I just want to ignore him, then fall on your knees and give thanks to God that his spirit is working inside of you. If you never have a struggle, you're probably just not conscious. Or you're living a very fake religion. God has zero interest in that. Now, we may go through periods of life where it just is a whole lot easier to move into the presence of God. We may have extended periods where everything falls into place and it's like everything is just as I see the Lord everywhere. It's just easy to pray. Enjoy those seasons. That's not what Jesus promises, though. It's going to happen over and over and over again in this world. In this world, you're going to have trouble. So if you're struggling today, hallelujah, keep fighting to run towards God. And it says that uh, we acknowledge um, God. So this first three verses just sound the alarm. In verses 4 through 6, it tells us they are setting up kings without God's approval. This is what God has against them. And this is why this is important, incredibly applicable for us today. You may think, well, we're in America, dude. We don't have kings. Well, who's the king of your heart? See, what happened was that God had promised the line of David was going to be, uh, was, was going, to be uh, going all the way through. There was a king in Judah. But God goes to this particular king. So after Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam is king um, over in Judah. And so the kingdom divides into 10 tribes. And so I'm um, just to 12, uh, the, the, they divide into 10 and 2. 
So you got the 10 tribes that are up north, and you got the two tribes that are down south. Those two tribes down south are Benjamin, and they are also uh, Judah. And so God goes to one of these particular men, and he says, I want you to know that I'm going to give you the northern kingdom. So because of David, I'm going to honor him. I'm going to have his line that's going to go all the way through in the southern kingdom. But I want you to know that I'm going to give you these 10 kings, and I want you to follow me. And if you follow me, I am going to bless you over and over again. Did you know that? God went to the, the northern king right at the beginning and said, I'm going to bless you. Some of you remember this from the study we did in our Bible study um, uh, last year. So this is Jeroboam that would be uh, 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 doing this. But I want you to hear this. It's not going to be on the screens. okay? So Jeroboam has, um, uh, uh, from God, if you will follow me, you're going to experience blessing. Jeroboam, you're going to have the northern kingdom. Now listen to this. This comes from 1 Kings chapter 12. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David, meaning to the southern kingdom. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiances to the Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam, and after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves, and he said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan, and this thing became a sin, and the people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. The man who God told, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to prosper you if you just come to me. Looks around, he says, I don't know about this. Because there's a whole lot of popularity down there in the south. And by the way, people were making their way from the northern kingdom to the south. There were some, especially the faithful in Israel, were making their way down here. Why? Because this is where the temple of the Lord was. And so this king looks around, and out of fear for his own job, he chooses to make foreign gods. And so he sets up a place for sacrifice here, and he sets up a place for sacrifice here. And the Lord said, only come here. Now, what's the modern-day picture for us? God has said, if you want blessing, if you want honor, if you want joy, if you want peace, if you want no condemnation, if you want your sins forgiven, if you want help in life, in every aspect of your life, in marriage, in parenting, in work, etc., if you want help, come to Jesus. The one God. There's no other place to go. And so what do we do? We set up a God over here. We set up a God over here out of convenience, out of fear. What if God doesn't provide for me everything that I want? What if God doesn't give me the kind of life that I want? Will his grace be sufficient? So Rehoboam gives in to fear. Can I tell you this? When fear overcomes your faith, bad things happen. I want to give you some advice, just pastoral counsel. You'll see this all the way through the scriptures. It's just my language Somebody can probably give it better, but this is how I see it. Fight against fear through prayer. Do you know how you fight your fear? Because fear is natural. It's normal. It's understandable. The only way to actually fight against your fear is through prayer. 
fall on your knees and pray to the God of the universe who holds all power, all authority throughout all of the universe. Fight your fear through prayer. Fight for faith with obedience. Fight against fear with prayer. Fight for faith with obedience. See, the greatest teacher that you will ever have in life is not experience. It's obedience. Obedience to the Lord will prove over and over and over and over again to be worth it every single time. Disobedience, it won't. So the problem was that the people here, they set up kings that God had not appointed that God had not endorsed, etc. And the problem is that they did not see God himself as their ultimate leader. They were placing their hope in some king that they could prop up themselves. Let me just ask you, where's your hope for America? Is it in a political party? Is it in a law? Is it in a mindset? Is it in a particular approach to life? Where's your hope in the person of Jesus Christ who sets up governments and tears them down at his will? And the scripture says that the day is coming in which the government itself will be upon his shoulders. He will be the government that we will have in the future. Do you want to trust in politics or do you want to trust in Christ? If you choose to trust in Christ, you will never regret it. Real quickly, I don't want to make too much of this, but the two tribes that are to the south, Judah and Benjamin, are linked um, uh, forever. Do you remember the story of the 12 tribes of Israel initially? In other words, the 12 sons that were born. There was one that was sold into slavery. It was Joseph. He was put away. It was the one that was favored by the father and the brothers and their jealousy decided to get rid of him. And so they trafficked him. And so then the time came uh, for them to go uh, looking for him. There was a time in which um, they had to, to make their way actually to Egypt for, for food because there was a, um, a famine that was taking place in the land. And so if you recall, the father, Israel, has this great deal of affection for his son, Benjamin. Benjamin was the youngest, and his mother, Rachel, was the one that Israel loved so dearly, and she died not long after the birth. And so while this tribe is making their way up to Egypt to go for the food, it is Judah who says to the father, I'll protect him. I'll go with him. And it was the promise of Judah to protect Benjamin that the father finally acquiesced. And then you remember what happened when they were in the presence of Joseph. And then there was this setup that Joseph did to get them. And he said, I want you to leave with me, Benjamin. Leave with me this child. And do you remember who it was that said, take me instead? It was Judah. It was Judah who was pleading with Joseph, please take me instead of this child. Isn't it interesting that out of the tribe of Judah would come one who would 
stand in our behalf, who would do everything that was necessary for us, who would say before the Father, take me instead. In verses 7 through 10, they are setting up alliances with godless nations. The very nation that they sought for protection and provision uh, from is the exact nation that would turn on them. In 722 BC, the nation of Assyria would come in and overwhelm, overcome, and utterly destroy the Israelites. Now, when I say utterly destroy, I don't mean in the same way that God would wipe out some of the other nations um, in there, but just took them to task. It was so brutal in its, in its form and fashion that there would be a prophet later on named Jonah, who God would go to and say, I want you to bring this gospel message to these people. And say, I'm not doing that. Why? It was the Assyrians that he didn't want to give this message to. Can I ask you what it is that you are turning to for your protection and provision? The people of Israel turn to these nations for protection and provision. What is it that you currently are looking to for protection and provision? Is it your job? Is it your income? Is it the money that you have in the market? What is it that you are looking to for the future? And I'm not talking about doing things that are, I'm sorry, I would, I would endorse rather, do things that are wise. Of course, put money in the market. Of course, plan, etc. I'm asking you, does your hope lie in your wise plan? Or does your hope lie in the God who gave you the wise plan? Does your hope lie in a God who can take economies and rise them and fall them? When the story started, the economy of the Israelite people was booming. Where we are in the story now, it's plummeting. Does your stability and security last in your, or are you looking for it in popularity? The amount of friends that you develop? Is it in your family? Is your protection and your provision and your intellect, is it in your talent? What are you looking for? Is it somehow or another in your beauty or your strength or something else? If it's in anything else, I'm telling you, there's an enemy that is circling and just waiting to pounce on you. In verses 11 through 14, it tells us that he that they set up these altars for sinning. I just read to you what had happened with the kings. They set up altars over here and here, and they were altars that were designed to, to remind the people that, that giving of our best over to the Lord, giving him the first fruits, was a, was a reminder that God is the one who provides for us. And he set up these altars in these places to these other foreign gods. And some of the practices that were taking place in these other altars was actual temple prostitution. Believing that somehow or another they could pray to other gods that that is what would make them prosperous and successful would multiply them. And so having sex with other prostitutes in the temple was an act of worship they thought might even make them more um, literally physically productive in the process. God says you set up these altars for sin. Real quickly, just look at verse 12 of chapter 8. I wrote for them the many things of my law, but they regarded them as something foreign. Now, man, please let this sink in. 
God's word given to God's people. And he says, I wrote it down for them. And they looked at this as though it was something strange, something foreign, something weird. I assure you that in today's culture at large, if you take your Bible to you in a Starbucks, people will look at you and say, well, that's interesting. If you try to tell people that you base your life upon what this book has to say, most of the people will say, well, that's kind of cool if that works for you, but they will regard it as strange. You're basing your entire life on a book that talks about magical fruit and animals that talk and about some dude that supposedly lived a life of perfection and then was raised again after being dead for three days? You're basing your life on a book that talks about people getting swallowed by fish and being vomited out on lands? And Are you serious? They regarded it as something strange. And the reason they regarded it as something strange is because they weren't really used to it. They weren't really familiar with it. Charles Spurgeon, in talking about this exact verse here, verse 12 says this, If this be the word of God, what will become of some of you who have not read it for the last month? Most people treat the Bible very politely. They have a small pocket volume neatly bound. They put a white pocket handkerchief around it and carry it to their places of worship. And when they get home, they lay it up on a drawer till next Sunday's morning. Then it comes out again for a little bit of a treat and goes to the chapel. That is about all the poor Bible gets in the way of an airing. That is your style of entertaining this heavenly message. Please hear me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if there's something that's stirring in you right now saying, I really should be in this word, it's probably the Holy Spirit. Will God love you more if you read this? No. Will he love you less if you don't read this? No. You're just going to miss out on a relationship with the God of the universe. Now, chapters 9 and 10 are combined they talk about the consequences that are announced to pay later. And again, if you want me to walk through them each in detail, I can. I would just suggest that you would let me summarize them. <laughs> I'll meet with you in private to do that. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, it tells, he asks the question, what will you do? They loved the wages of prostitution, meaning they loved to celebrate sin. They love to talk in the locker room about all of their conquests with the women. They love to talk about all the ways they had taken advantage of the poor. They love to talk about the ways they had cheated others in the process. They love to make a public profession of all the ways they were getting away with sin. He tells them that your religious services are going to end in verses 7 through 9. He even tells us that those who preach the truth are going to be viewed as fools. In verses 10 through 17 of chapter 9, it tells us that, uh, that the people were going to be rejected by God. This is the consequence, that God is going to remove his presence for a time. Ephraim's glory is talking about the numerous children that were promised by God. Again, they were thinking that the other gods were going to make them fertile in the process. He says that there's not even going to be pregnancy nor even conception. It didn't literally mean that there was going to be no one who was ever getting pregnant. It means that the nation was not going to grow. In fact, the nation was going to be overcome. The chilling picture that he brings 
of them bringing their own children to the slayer is what it says in here. The pictures that he gives us, that the real cause is that God has removed his presence from them. Would you know what it felt like if God removed his presence from you? Or would it be just like another day? There is nothing as spine-chilling as the thought of God removing his presence from us. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 8, it tells us that there's going to be no altar and there's going to be no king. The time is coming in which Israel will no longer have a king. It'll be after the fall of Samaria um, uh, in, in 722. And um, the people themselves are going to recognize that their state is so hopeless that even if they were to have a king, it would do them no good. No sacrifices will be made because the temple is going to be destroyed. That would happen later on in 586 uh, BC in the, in the southern kingdom. Finally, in verses 9 through 15 in chapter 10, it gives us just a summary. And I want to read this to you from a man named Keith Brooks. He said this. If the grace of God prevail not to destroy the love of sin in us, it is just that the providence of God should destroy the fuel of sin about us. And what, uh, what men have made idols of should be spoiled because God does not desire the ruin of sinners. He desires their chastisement. What he does not desire is the utter ruin of sinners. He desires them to recognize what we're doing is wrong and we got to turn towards you. What the prayer is, what the prayer ought to be for all of us, be it for ourselves, be it for our spouses, be it for our parents, our children, our friends, whatever, that life would become so miserable when we live life apart from God that what we taste in our mouth is so bitter that we would fall down on the ground with no one else to look at, nothing else to, to know other answers, and to look up, and the only solution is the person of God himself. This is the picture God was giving to Hosea. Tell your wife that nobody else around is going to provide anything for it. And I want you to pull back for just a moment. And I want her to taste what it's like to actually have no provision. So that she will come back. And remember his commands to, to, to Hosea? Go back and woo her. My friends, God may indeed right now be taking you through a period of time in which there seems to be ruin in your life. If that is the case, my encouragement to you is look up. He does not desire your ruin. He desires your chastisement. And just because you may be going through some very difficult things does not necessarily mean that you have been running away from God. That may just be life's normal struggles. But you also may be experiencing some great prosperity in this season right now. And I would encourage you, if you're experiencing great prosperity right now, would you not think that somehow or another it has to do with how brilliant you are and how wonderful the support system is around you? Although those things are great, fall on your knees and recognize that God himself has provided you with blessing. And thank him.
So pursue and respond to the person of God and regularly, consistently practice gratitude to God for his faithfulness. We've had the same applications for every sermon in this series. All my friends, love includes consequences. And if you're experiencing it right now, it's likely because God loves you.